Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Science Behind Science podcast. In today's episode, we hear Steve Agard enlighten us with his most memorable experiences during his 40-year career at NASA and discuss whether dinosaurs were actually like what the films portrayed them to be. But first, let's jump straight into the Science Behind Science segment of the podcast where in this episode, we talk about the science behind magnetic levitation. So this section is all about the science behind magnetic levitation and how it is useful in the modern world. So, we need to break it down to what magnetic levitation is. Magnetic levitation is defined in the dictionary as the suspension of an object above or below a second object by means of magnetic repulsion or attraction. What it's talking about is if you put two magnets with the same poles facing each other, you'll get the field lines going directly upwards and in a perfect simulation the top magnet in the air would just hover because of the repulsive force. So in industry they do it in a very different way okay and this this involves superconductors and magnets. What is a superconductor? Well a superconductor is a material that has no electrical resistance when below a certain temperature. So let's break that down. In a normal wire you've got a metal and metal structure has the nuclei of, of them, so the metal nuclei, they're positively charged because the electrons flow freely through the metal. So when, when, a, when a normal wire or a metal is induced with a current, there is resistance because these electrons collide with these metal um, cations that are just sitting there in the wire. They're fixed, so, so that's why there's quite a lot of collisions, and then the more collisions, the more resistance, and that gives an increase in temperature. So, so, so superconductors have no electrical resistance, so there's no collision between these electrons and the metal cations. And so it needs to be below a certain temperature for this to occur, and this temperature is particular for each specific material. So it's usually ceramics that can do this. And this temperature, where no electrical resistance can occur, is called the critical temperature. Now this is very important because if you're above it, the magnetic levitation isn't possible. So the levitation can occur when the magnetic field is excluded from the interior of the superconductor. This is called the Meissner effect. That is the science behind magnetic levitation. Now, on to a voice behind science, where in this episode, Steve Agard shares his experiences with working for NASA. So Steve, first question is, when did you join NASA? 
Well, my first job was with the RCA and GE companies in the, their space division. I worked with uh, communication satellites, and uh, we used uh, those communication satellites to get data and uh, part of uh, the tracking network for, for NASA. They also ended up being used for things like uh, television broadcasts, you know, what we would call in America cable TV. And I did that uh, for 12 years as an orbital analyst. So the, my job is to keep spacecraft in their correct orbits, uh, plan maneuvers, and uh, troubleshoot problems on board those satellites. And I did that uh, from uh, 1976 to 1988. Uh, from 1988 to 2002, I worked on the space shuttle program on uh, nearly 60 of the 135 space shuttle missions as a uh, engineer and in the, what was called the Payload Projects Directorate on whatever it is we were launching into space to learn as much about those different spacecraft we were taking up on the space shuttle, uh, like the Hubble Telescope or the Gamma Ray Observatory, the Chandra Observatory, uh, all nine missions to the Mir Space Station and several space station missions as well. And then uh, from 2002 to 2016, I worked uh, with uh, Boeing and uh, United Launch Alliance on the Atlas and Delta rocket programs. And uh, those rockets launched lots of different types of uh, spacecraft uh, for, for NASA and uh, for private industry as well. Okay, and, and how did you get your job? Who did you approach to, to get it? Well, my very, my very first job, uh, you, you do it by having a very normal thing. It's, it's a job interview, and uh, a friend of mine was uh, working with the RCA company, and they were looking for what at the time was called spacecraft controllers, and uh, he mentioned uh, my name, and I said, well, I'd, I'd like to come up there too, and we had exactly the same background. We were exactly the same classes at school, so I fit right in there, and then an opportunity came out in the uh, space shuttle program, uh, you have your interviews, um, and we talk to the same type of people. They tour you around, see how well you'd mix with the group. And uh, when the opportunity came up uh, to go across the river and work with the Atlas and Delta rocket programs, uh, the same thing. You work with a lot of the same people. It's a it's a great community. You bump into this, a lot of the same people uh, over the years, so people get to know you. And by that time of that uh, second uh, second job, I had close to 30 years of experience by that time. So, you know, you get to know a lot of the same people and uh, you understand the space business a lot better. Where did you predominantly work? Okay, uh, when I worked with the RCA and GE divisions, I worked in uh, New Jersey, which is about an hour away from New York City. When I worked at the, uh, with the space shuttle program, was, I was at the Kennedy Space Center, and when I worked at the uh, Delta and Atlas program, that's Cape Canaveral, which is right next to the Kennedy Space Center. So uh, most of my career from uh, 1988 to uh, the current time, I was at the Kennedy Space Center area. Okay, and what qualifications did you have to get your first job? The first job, uh, my degree was in something called Space Sciences, and that was from the Florida Institute of Technology in uh, 1974. And the space science degree was a little bit of a lot of the different types of engineering. So we had courses in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, uh, physics, mathematics, computer science. So it was a very, very well-rounded program. And when I got my first job is when uh, I started learning more about uh, orbit dynamics and uh, how do you keep spacecraft in orbit. And if you can get that job, the company will usually be very, very good about training you as far as what exactly it is they want you to do and how they want you to do it. They just want to know that you have the commitment 
to do that. And that's what you get out of that college. And that's why, again, I always emphasize the internship. So you get a feeling, what is the real industry like, as opposed to what you think it might be, or what you think it is based on what you saw on television. The idea is you can actually work in the real industry before, just to see if this is really what you want to pursue as a career. Okay. And, and what was your, what was your favorite role? Well, every one of those jobs had many, many uh, great, great moments with them, and all of them, you know, very, very important. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, for example, let me just give you one from each, just to give you an idea. When I just started working with RCA and GE in the space divisions, well, uh, one of our first jobs was when the American Viking lander landed on Mars. That was July 20th, 1976. We were getting the very first pictures back from the surface of Mars. That was just astounding to watch that you're taking part in that. On the space shuttle program, you know, working inside the space shuttle cockpit, getting the spacecraft ready to fly, uh, working with the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, you know, that's terrific. And on the uh, Delta program, for example, uh, being part of that first launch of the Orion spacecraft that's going to soon be taking us to the moon and Mars and a lot of the other different missions that we were able to accomplish in space. You know, every one of these programs had so many very, very important missions. So every one of them had great, uh, great opportunities for great pride. Okay. And how, uh, how many missions were you involved in in your career? Well, for the uh, space shuttle program, uh, 60 of the 135 missions, I worked with all seven of the RCNG communications satellites. And until I left, I worked with every uh, Delta IV mission from uh, the very first uh, Delta IV mission in uh, 2002 all the way till October of 2016. So that's 14 years, all those uh, different missions and uh, many of the Atlas missions uh, as well towards the later part of that time. And what was your proudest moment of your career? Well, there is uh, probably, uh, if I have to narrow it down, I could probably narrow it down to two. Uh, one was uh, technically satisfying and one was emotionally satisfying. For the uh, technically satisfying one, I think the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, you know, people had been waiting for such a long time to launch Hubble. It was such an incredible disappointment that the mirror wasn't working. And it was an extremely ambitious mission to try to figure out how to save this telescope. And to be part of that team and see that mission successfully accomplished was just you know, a terrific feeling that now, after the repair, and again, the repair is in 1993, so that repair is 26 years ago, and we're still getting terrific data back from Hubble. Emotionally satisfying, it was a mission called uh, STS-95. Now, when I was growing up, I was just in fourth grade when a man named John Glenn became the first American to go into orbit around the Earth, and I got an opportunity to work on that mission, you know, with... Uh, the crew of uh, Shuttle Mission 95, which was the John Glenn return to flight. So working there, you know, with uh, somebody you looked up to when you were a kid and working with them in the mission, is uh, that was terrific as well. And what was the most nerve-wracking moment of your career? Oh, there was, uh, there's very, there's a lot of those as well. Uh, every mission, you're just waiting for something to go wrong. You think you've covered everything but you're, you're never quite sure. 
just to give you an idea, on my first mission that I was a, a lead on was the Gamma Ray Observatory. And we had to bring all the customer's equipment into the launch pad. So I decided, well, I didn't want to leave anything up to chance. So I measured how tall their equipment was. You know, make sure from the very bottom to the very top, it was exactly the right height. I knew we had a bunch of low-hanging lamps uh, from the top. So I walked the entire transportation route. And, oh, yeah, I had at least an inch or two of clearance. Great, we can get up, we can get out, we can get over. There won't be any problem. Then came the time we were going to be transporting it. Well, we got out of the elevator, and to my horror, I looked at the ground and found out the floor is a grill work. Uh, so it's not a flat floor. It's a, you know, it's a grill. And the wheels underneath, the tiny little wheels under the equipment, were thin enough that they would fit right into where the grill was. See, if you roll this equipment out a foot, chances are the wheel would go boom, and these racks were hundreds of pounds. So if I rolled it out just a foot, that wheel would go boom right into a hole in the grill. And I remember just staring there saying, how could I have been so silly? Uh, one of the other fellows was there a lot longer than me says, oh, I see uh, those wheels are kind of small. We have a whole bunch of planks that we put out when this happens. So he just laid these planks on the grill work and we just rolled it right in, which just goes to show you that no matter how well you plan for something, uh, chances are it's probably come up in the past. And this fellow was here for a much longer time than I was. And after that, that was one less thing I had to worry about. But again, it's a lot of times, it's a lot of little things that'll get you, not necessarily a really big thing. And every mission is like that. If you've never done that type of mission before, you never know one small thing that can happen. And that's why we rehearse everything as, as well as we can. Okay. And and you mentioned earlier that you've, you, you worked closely with astronauts. There's a stereotype that astronauts are all very similar. Is that the case? No, it is not the case, except for one aspect. Um, and that one aspect is a commitment to doing the mission. They are all extremely, extremely focused on that. All the personalities are different. Even between the groups themselves, you have those that are uh, the pilots. And, you know, for them, piloting is the most important thing. You have folks that are the scientists going up. You know, to learn, you know, the, the reason you're launching this is to launch this science experiment. They think they're in charge because the reason you're sending this thing up is to get this science data, and they're the ones doing the science data. So everybody feels that their job is the most important, and that goes for the ground crew as well. You know, we, we say we're the most important because without us testing this, it's not going to go into space. The space shuttle crew that are on the ground the same thing. Without the space shuttle, you're not going to get that into space. So it's good that everybody thinks, you know, that their job is the most important. That's the only way this is going to succeed. But as for the crew itself, the crew works together. But as far as personality types, you have some that are, you know, very, very quiet. You have some that are that are jokers. You have some that uh, have every aspect of human behavior and some that have the equally opposite aspect of human behavior. Uh, no shuttle crews, no shuttle crew is alike. And the only thing they have is this incredible sense of teamwork and incredible sense of we are going to get this job done. And that's it. So that part is extremely similar. Everything else is, uh, you know, everything else is the luck of the draw. You have some crew members 
uh, that spent a lot of time with each other because they might have gone to the same military schools or civilian schools, so they've known each other, some that haven't. And so every every team is different. Every, uh, every team, every uh, astronaut flight has a very a very different feel to it because the members interact a little bit differently with each other. But uh, the one thing they all have in common is an intense focus on what they have to do and to have it done successfully. How are you involved with NASA today? Today I'm working at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. I love it because, uh, again, a lot of other people like me that have retired you know, you, you go from uh, an incredibly important job and a very, very exciting job. And if you're retiring, if you just want to sit on the back lawn and uh, just watch the clouds pass by, it's, it's kind of come down. So I met a lot of people that had been doing things like this, working at a space center. So you get to work with a lot of folks that you used to work with. It's a lot more fun talking to people like you about um, what I did in the career than uh, sometimes being out at the launch pad in the middle of the night during a thunderstorm and having mosquitoes bite you. Uh, this is a lot more fun in a way, a lot less pressure, but it keeps you still involved with the space program, learning about it more and more, the new things that are coming out, being ex- able to explain that to the general public is very, very rewarding as well. I remember uh, when you gave me a tour, actually, at, at the mm-hmm. Kennedy Space Center, you said that people remember you from doing the countdown, one of the, one of the missions. Yes, uh, I did the countdowns for 60 uh, flights, uh, 30 on uh, Delta IV, 20 on Delta II, and uh, 10 uh, for the Atlas V. It was either the countdown or the plus count as the rocket's going into space, so about 60 different missions. So people till today say, your voice sounds very familiar, and that's, uh, that's what that was from. So uh, getting to actually narrate the the, um, the launches, either the countdown segment of it or the what we call the plus count or the flyout as the vehicle's going up. Uh, most engineers don't like talking in front of groups. A lot of people are afraid of TV cameras. Uh, I don't mind doing that. Many engineers don't like that. Uh, and so it was, uh, people say it must have been a hard job to get. No, it's the easiest job in the world to get. Most people don't want doing it. A lot of people don't like interviewing people. So you just have to look in the mirror to yourself because a lot of people would say, oh, I'd hate to interview people. I'd be afraid to ask questions. I don't know how to end an interview. Uh, but everybody is different. And uh, I've always enjoyed that. Some people run away from it. Oh, I'd, I'd hate to have people staring at me uh, and you're under pressure. But they would behave very perfectly in, in, in a countdown stressful situation because they're more used to that part. And I had no problem doing that. So that was a very easy transition for me. An interesting interview there with Steve, which will continue in the next episode, where we discuss the future of NASA. Now, in this episode section of The Science Behind Films, we talk about what dinosaurs were really like. Jurassic Park series is one of the most successful film franchises ever, but were the dinosaurs shown in these films actually like that when they lived? 
The concept of the film is that a mosquito that had fed on a dinosaur had got stuck in tree sap and was fossilised. A biotech company then extracted the dinosaur DNA and used it to bring different types of dinosaurs out of extinction. The dinosaurs were then put in a theme park, but just before opening, the owner of the biotech company invited some scientists to the park in the hope of getting their endorsement. However, their trip goes horribly wrong. During the films, we see many different types of dinosaur, but how accurate were the depictions of them? Were they dull-coloured and reptilian? In reality, dinosaurs were actually very bird-like. Surprisingly, it is thought that many dinosaurs had feathers. Paleontologists in China found lumps on the bones of dinosaur skeletons that would hold ligaments to support feathers. The lumps were found on the fossils of velociraptors and herbivorous dinosaurs. In 2014, paleontologists announced that they had found a herbivorous dinosaur fossil that had scales and feathers. After this discovery was made, a group of scientists worked together to create a flowchart to find when and where dinosaurs began to develop feathers. However, the investigation yielded no fruit, concluding that there was not enough evidence to draw a solid conclusion. It has also been discovered that dinosaurs were actually quite colourful and not plain coloured like they are shown to be in the films. It has been discovered that a one metre long dinosaur that was a cousin of the T-Rex had white and orange stripes. But how do scientists know what the colour of the dinosaur was? Well, they look at the cells in the skin of the dinosaur fossils called melanosomes, which are cells that produce the pigment melanin. The shape of these melanosomes determines its colour. They extracted melanosomes from the dinosaur and compared them to the melanosomes found in zebra finch feathers. They found that the melanosomes were an identical match. They could then look at the spread of the melanosomes found in the dinosaur and match it with its corresponding colour. Long thin melanosomes called eumelanosomes produced grey and black pigments while spherical melanosomes, called melanosomes, created an orange-brown pigment. This was the most common type of melanosome, suggesting that it was the first to evolve. So the orange and white striped dinosaur that I mentioned earlier had bands of circular melanosomes alongside bands of no melanosomes at all, creating the orange and white stripes. Now scientists are wondering how these colours may have influenced the dinosaur's behaviour. They may have used their colours to get attention from the other sex, or perhaps use them for communicating. The feathers may have also been developed to keep their eggs warm. But this isn't to say that dinosaurs were kind creatures. They were still extremely dangerous. For example, when a fossilised skull of a Synorthosaurus was discovered, they found that it appeared to have venom glands in its teeth. And there we are. We have reached the end of episode 3 of the Science Behind Science podcast. Thank you very much for listening and join us next time where we talk about the science behind the strong nuclear force, hear Steve Agate talk about the future of NASA and discuss whether it is possible to de-extinct an animal. If you have any questions about the podcast then be sure to contact me. You can email me at sciencebehindsciencepod at gmail.com you can tweet me at sbehindspod, or you can direct message me on Instagram at sbs-pc. 
If you're feeling generous, feel free to visit the podcast Patreon page. You can find this in the Twitter account's bio. If you want some general info about the podcast, you can visit our website. You can find it at www.sbs-pc.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in episode four. Thank you.